Welcome everyone to the Vezza Talks podcast. I'm your co-host, Stefan Katanik, founder and CEO of Vezza Digital, and I have a very special guest with me today, Raul. Raul is a growth strategist, author, and mentor. He helps digital businesses design profitable growth and scale their impact. And on this very special episode of Vezza Talks, he's going to take me through my very own breakthrough session as if he's coaching me, the CEO of Vezza Digital, and I'm super excited to have you, Raul, do this with me. It's an honor to be on. I'm excited for our conversation. Excellent, man. Raul, give me a give me a quick who you are, why you're important, and what can we learn from you? I'm not sure if I'm important, but uh, who I am, um, I love to power lift. I love to drink some good espressos. I have my son. He's about two running around downstairs, so I chase him, and I do walks with our golden retriever, my wife, serve at a local church here. And uh, when I'm not doing that and I'm in front of a screen, um, I'm literally helping companies find not just breakthroughs, it's the small things that over time equal significant growth and revenue. Um, in the past, I've doubled to f- two to five X digital agencies using my strategies. I've, in my history so far, have been responsible for over 25 million in ad spend, direct response ad spend. I've designed teams that have done 50 million in sales. I've helped coach a lot of people and have been able to lead teams over 12 different time zones. And I think the the greatest honor is to be able to uh, kind of mentor individuals in their career and help them find their own breakthroughs in their in their personal trajectory. So I'm excited to to be here with you. Yeah, that's really exciting. I, after reading your bio, I'm like, Raul is the kind of leader that I want to be speaking to. You know, you have you have the numbers behind you. You definitely have the people. You have the personality of it. I took a look at your podcast as well and listened to some of the podcasts you have there. And some of those talks were just really inspiring, you know, and I wanted personally to speak with you on this one um, because of what you've done, right? And right now in, in our business, Vezza Digital, we're at that point where, you know, we're all about scale. I'm removing myself from the day-to-day operations from working in the business and working on the business. And I saw on your website as well, like, who's the bottleneck kind of thing? And I started asking myself last week, I'm like, well, you know what? In some parts, I'm the bottleneck. In some parts, I used to be the bottleneck. And in some parts, I'm probably still going to be the bottleneck until the end of this quarter, right? And so uh, it's a big mind shift change for myself and my team. And mm-hmm. you, with, with, with your leadership capabilities and what you've, what you've done in your career, you know, um, helping out a 29-year-old, you know, second-time founder, doing a service-based business, you know, what would be, what would be how would you approach this? I would say really it's all about first designing where you want to go and why you want to get there. A lot of times we, we mis, misinterpret like, oh, we need to have X amount of goals, X amount of dollars, X amount of team members. And we, stop, we forget to stop to think is, what is the journey I'm designing? Because the journey does determine your destination. Sometimes we're like, hey, let's figure this destination out and at all costs, including our health and our family, hit that number. Um, which works, you can be successful, but I also think it's important to like, how do, how do, can you enjoy the journey, not burn out, but then also design for your team to enjoy that journey. I think you can arrive to it very fruitfully. So I'll bring it back to you. Where do you want to grow to? Definitely. So Vezza Digital, I see, I see this agency as always existing, right? Five yeah. years from now, I see it here. 10 years from now, 15 years from now, I see it here. Right, it's okay. a service-based business. It's really good for us to attract good talent. We mm-hmm. talk to many different types of founders who just got some sort of Series A or Series B uh, funding. So we're always working with new new types of ideas. 
it's a very mm-hmm. dynamic environment where we're constantly working with new types of projects, right? And for me, I'm a kind of guy that I like I like change, whether it's changing environments all around the world, whether it's mm-hmm. traveling, um, whether it's changing the type of work that we do with the type of CMS or type of way of advertising. I like experiences mm-hmm. like that, right? And I, I made it a mission for Veza to always go beyond, right? Go beyond the normal way of doing things, right? And that's been our model since I day one. It. Yeah, and and my journey is like, you know, we have Veza Digital, which is always going to be there, but then we have our sister company, which is our B2B agency marketplace, right? That's mm. that's that's the thing that's going to basically scale us through software, right? And, yeah. and you know, after that company, whatever happens there, we're still going to have Veza Digital, right? And it's always going to be, uh, a portal for new ideas, working on new ideas, our own ideas, and, and so on and so forth. I want to use it as an engine that can drive change for myself and also my team members and our clients that we work with. I love that. So I see the vision. I hear you saying the right words in regards to we want to attract talent, not just hire people to do a job. And I think that's significant, especially, I mean, we're almost the same age. So at our age to know that, <laughs> to be able to to, to have that that wisdom. You've already designed, and from what I'm hearing, the business model then, like if I have X amount of users in the B2B platform and X amount of agency clients, here's how many we have to sell, here's how many churn, you have that mapped out already, correct? For for that model, Veza.io, that one, yes, we do. And then for our main business, the agency, we do as well. Okay, so you have the specific. That's the first stage that I normally go to in developing growth plans is identifying the scalable business model. What is the growth strategy? What are the sales? What are the trends and what are the opportunities and revenue? Um, have you dissected the um, percentage allocation of revenue streams? For example, some of our products or services per, per agency and per B2B uh, marketplace, uh, these packages or these offers, here's the percentage that they contribute to top line revenue. And have you dissected your offerings that way? We have, we, we looked at our, our web design deals and those are, you know, we're ranked first globally for Webflow agency, right under Webflow, right? So we have an abundance of leads coming in every single day and we've been able to productize our services over the last year and a bit. And basically we now, we know what packages are the highest selling packages. We know which add-ons are the highest selling add-ons based on the type of niche or sub niche that this Um, client is coming in towards, right? So all the B2B Mm -hmm. SaaS companies that are Series A, they want a marketing website where they can deploy different types of A-B tests, landing pages, and marketing campaigns to relatively quick, right? So we know Mm -hmm. that that package for them is $50,000 plus, you know, these bells and whistle add-ons like motion graphics, ongoing support, SEO, right? And so we've been able to um, productize that. And now in our other marketing messages through Outbound, we basically take that offer now to the market in a more outbound approach. Does that make sense? Okay, that does make sense. So you know the diversification of revenue, you know your inbound funnel, your outbound funnel. That kind of takes care of the second string where I look in the revenue engine. So there's three pieces to the revenue engine and this all ties back to profit. We haven't touched profit yet, but uh, the revenue engine that I look into is your acquisition model and then revenue retention. And then from revenue retention to company health metrics on revenue efficiencies your revenue efficiencies, your all-in costs for marketing, et cetera. Um, tell me more about your current retention strategies, your retention model for both the agency and the B2B market. Right, so the agency, the, the model's pretty pretty straightforward. We, we give good results, we put people first. So when I say people first, we don't follow the traditional way of just doing fully Zoom calls or Google Meets. Uh, mm-hmm. Our teams will actually go once a quarter to their offices, 
bring a box of bagels, some coffee, donuts, you know, talk shop nice. for a day or two, workshops. Um, so we try to we try to personalize a lot of that, right? And and show up as partners. So um, that has enabled us to retain most of our top twenty percent of our clientele, where we okay. have per projects, but then we have ongoing retainers with them. And then the bottom eighty percent, those are mostly. Um, churn models of per projects that come to us for web design and there's some ongoing SEO for a few months until they actually start delegating in-house right Um, Mm. now for the marketplace we still are in our closed beta that retention model is you come once you know you you do the service with us that we broker to another white label agency we broker you to a reputable agency they do a good job they provide a really good rate we solve a problem for both sides of the market which is basically capacity they either have capacity or they don't have capacity. The ones who don't have capacity, white label capacity at a wholesale rate, use that capacity for that project. They make money. These guys make money because their talent isn't idle. So we're solving two parts of the problem. Um, mm-hmm. But retention is something that I always strive to improve in different ways. And mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have, nor does my biz dev team or my um, accounts team have a, a, a clear cut strategy. We mostly mm-hmm. go based on intuition and gut feeling. Mm, okay. I mean, that that works in the beginning, and typically, I mean, yeah. well, let's let's dive into that. Maybe maybe this is the area for breakthrough. So, if if I can recap, so that I ensure that I understood correctly, is that for the agency front, you have the traditional project work and or retainer work. Are you performance based? Are you per project? Are you month to month? Are you what's what's the goal? It's like a, what's it's the actual mixture. pricing model? It's a mixture. Yeah. So first, what we'll do is we'll create them a really nice marketing website using Webflow. Right, yeah. that'll probably take two to three months for a full turnaround. Once that's turned around, they'll bring us on board to do ongoing SEO or some sort of paid ads or paid search, right? And okay. then we'll build a percentage of ad spend, whether it's ten to fifteen percent of that monthly ad spend. Okay. How do you differentiate from other agencies if you're selling services? How do we differentiate? That's a really good question, and I can give you the traditional cliche answer. But the, the truth is, is, is Vesa Digital, we position ourselves as basically an extension of your marketing team, right? It's that we're not an agency, although we operate as an agency, we want people to have that personable feel, right? When they're you know, talking to, it's a partner, right? I love that. But let's, let's, let's actually lean a little bit stronger because my thesis now at the wave of beginning of using AI tools, and I'll give you some stories, um, like I, one of one of the clients that I'm working with, um, can't tell the name, but they have they do some branding, they do some brand decks, and one of the people that they use or agencies or vendors that they use for some of those pieces, you know, they may charge you know five figures for a brand deck or brand guide, et cetera, because they're selling a service. Right now, I think we're at the tip of the iceberg of all the tools that are going to come out. It's still machine learning; it's not true AI. Um, but to be able to have people become more effective and efficient in the work output. And some of the services will be commoditized. Some of the services will be commoditized and replaced by a machine or a tool, whatever you want to call it, AI or whatever marketing AI, that'll do it faster, cheaper, and better while, they, while you know, with needing no rest, no emotions, and no extra overtime. I know that's always been a threat in the beginning when we did outsourcing, when that first became like very prevalent in the US. And then we also started doing um, you know, automation work, but I think now it's becoming extremely incredible what one individual can do with these tools. So my thesis right now, the way that I'm seeing this, that if you're selling services as a service, you will be commoditized because then you're starting to position yourself. Like, okay, well, 
who can I get this same service for at a better job or a better rate and still get the same output that I desire. So when you hear that, how else could you position yourself with your clients? Like what is the end outcome or end goal? Because people don't buy a website to feel good. Some people sell it that way. And I know Webflow designs, I mean, it's beautiful. What Webflow produces is amazing, right? And even looking at your website, it's, it's definitely, it's not average, it's really cool. But we always have to understand what's the business case we're building. If you work with me, I build your website, I do the Webflow, I do the SEO, I do some paid ads, for what end? What's the purpose, right. what's the outcome? Right, well, you know what? Some, some clients tell us they're trying to raise their next round and look cool, you know? Yeah. We have some clients that tell us that, hey, we're looking to increase our conversion rate but being hip and modern and look way better than our competitor, right? Mm -hmm. uh, some tell us, hey, we want a fully SEO-backed website where every single page is its own homepage and we want to dominate top of Google, right? So mm -hmm. it's all these different outcomes people are looking for, but ultimately they come to us to solve a problem related to either vanity, looking good, or a business metric, which is getting more leads and filling up their pipeline. Yeah, it's acquisition. I actually don't think the vanity piece. I have a friend who charges a significant amount for just the logo and brand design and some, some websites too. But what he does it for specifically is what you said, is like these companies are looking to exit or they're looking yeah. to raise their next round. And when you do that, I don't know if he has tied it back yet, but maybe it'd be cool for you to look at if when we did this project, let's just look at that section, new webflow design or new website design, just for that particular scope. For the ones who wanted an outcome of higher valuation or a higher round, how much did they raise on average? How much would they have raised or in their minds have raised without the website? And that gap, that difference, not that you can guarantee it, but you want to be able to sell that transformation. You don't sell websites. Mm -hmm. I can get a website, you know, you already know, like the costs are ridiculous. Like they're really low. You can get a website for really low cost. I think what you'll, you'll be selling now for that in that particular use case could be I help you I don't know add an extra 50 in your valuation or in your how do you do that oh we do our proprietary web design formula they're not buying a website they're buying that valuation man that is so powerful yeah positioning ourselves differently from a service because every service right now and this is unfortunate is going to be commoditized um, I know this might be too early. This might be early adopter. I, I might drink too much of the Kool-Aid, but I just see it. And I mean, you're on LinkedIn, right? I'm on LinkedIn. I go to sales navigator on LinkedIn. I search digital marketing agency. I have about 4,000, 6,000 hits. I look at the ones that have been around for three years, five years. And I look at the first 20, 50, 100, all the same. I do web design. I do PPC. I do SEO. I do social media content. I do, I do all the same things, all the same. What's the difference? For me, if I can see you, everyone doing the same thing, and you're all competing in the middle playing field, then it becomes a commodity. Then I'm looking at who can do it that the best for the lowest rate. Like, or another example, right now I'm in the market for podcast guesting, right? Just to be completely blunt and upfront. Uh, I'm interviewing a few people to do it for me, some companies and some services. They're all doing the exact same sales call. I mean, th that you and I know, well, where are you at? Where do you want to go? What's your gap? What's stopping you? Like the whole gap selling. That's cool. All right. And I know they're going to position based on the prices that I told them that I expect to pay or expect to, to receive. Like, oh, if I get 15 new deal or like whatever, right? So they're going to position their pricing based on value. Oh, if we can help you get this, then we can charge 10% of that or 20% of that, right? 
but that's still a service isn't a commodity the key would be and i hopefully they hear this in time to pitch me correctly but when they pitch me i don't want them to pitch me on the service i want them to pitch me like oh here is the outcome you can expect and here's our guarantee and when you make stronger offers because of the work that you've done in the past and not backing up with uh, oh we'll get you for example if you do ad spend we'll get you a 3x roi like not that kind of guarantee but a guarantee based on the work quality what you've done in the past in your like your actual repertoire oh we're at, we're averaging this much value add guaranteeing that and have the client feel they're actually buying the transformation not the service no one wants a service they want the business case of leads and which you mentioned leads new sales some cost savings but preferably growth this to me is like I've heard it so many times, but I've never heard it in such a simple and articulate way how you just explained it. I appreciate that. Really? No, it's really powerful. Selling the transformation. And we normally do sell the transformation. We sell the outcome. We talk about the outcome. We talk about a partnership after this project is completed, right? Mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. You know, with some agencies, I know from our white level program, I feel like it's becoming a race to the bottom, you know, in terms of like price and like trying to maintain that quality. And, mm-hmm. and, and we shifted our mindset about two years ago to providing that ultra level of design, you know, and, and provide a really premium experience for websites, right? Like, for example, you see on our website, VezaDigital.com, our level of just like design feel and, and emotional pull that you have towards it, right? It's following all the 2023 design trends, all the UI elements are there that are supposed to be there. So when B2B SaaS companies come to us, they discovered mm-hmm. Webflow maybe a couple months ago, but they don't know how to use it. So by owning that top of the funnel in organic by having a website like this our conversion rate to becoming a lead is pretty good and then our conversion rate from lead to sales around 35 percent there's always room for improvement but now we're like okay how do we how do we actually scale this how do we take this from you know five mil to ten mil you know and that's that's Mm -hmm. the mindset we're at right now i have a client where that's the goal they're at six they want to get to eight eight figures um I think a lot of it does begin with business model innovation first. I think with the sales and the pipeline, it sounds to me like you have that equation solved, which typically that's the hardest to always solve, right? Lead gen. The nuances, maybe we can get a little advanced here. The nuances would be business model innovation, pricing, positioning, and the segment of the market that you want to work with and the total addressable market there. Do you want to be low cost, high, high volume? Do you want to be high cost, low volume? It sounds to me that you're premium cost right now, but what's, what's the vision for the future? Yeah. And, um, I love that because, you know, our pricing, we, it's standardized for our services, our position right now, we're, we're almost there, but we know our niche is B2B SaaS series A to series C that we want mm-hmm. to work with. Right. Um, And these are mostly companies in North America. So our pricing and our niche is there. It's our positioning and how we're positioning ourselves in that market of the niche for Vezit Digital specifically is what we're trying to figure out at this moment right now. Okay. Tell me a little bit more about the the psychology of the founder or the board. Like who who buys from you? Is it the founder? Is it the is it the director of marketing? Is it the VP of marketing? Is it the CRO? It's normally the CMO, the the CEO, 
uh, or the co-founders themselves, right? So it's, okay. um, I'd say those three personas are the highest that we get, but we do get occasionally like, you know, director of marketing, VP of marketing that, that come to us. Okay. Tell me more about how, do, how usually they have to get marketing to be able to, to, to buy. Tell me about their beliefs around marketing, their beliefs around business and how they like to make decisions. Right. Um, that's a really good question. The most common denominator that we get is they understand the power of a website, of a marketing website, that it's the first point of reference for new employees, investors, new clients, uh, media companies, people looking for resources related to that problem they solve, right? And so they always want their website to basically have all that information there accessible in an easy way, in an easy format, right? That is pretty much on nine times out of 10, we hear that from these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, be, so that's surface layer. That's great. I want to dive a little deeper and I want to understand their worldview. I want to understand how they make decisions. I want to understand, do they grow up thinking the world's a safe place or a dangerous place? I want to understand what they think about business, what they think about others. This sounds super like lofty and weird, mm-hmm. but when you understand their psychology, you get to understand how they think and what their beliefs are and their limiting beliefs are. And when you understand what they're actually seeking for, why they do what they do, your language, your languaging, your positioning, and your sales conversations are actually different. Um, I mean, I can get into nuances as to seeing this and having this work in, in practicality. But when you understand that, then you can position around the products and services on the emotions that they want to to get everyone wants growth. I get it. Everyone wants growth, and those are the results that they want: growth, cost savings, etc. If you're aligned to those things, you'll always be in business. But we want to go beyond that. Cool, that's the the baseline. What are the true emotions that they're actually seeking? Do they want confidence and certainty that this website's going to convert? Are you selling confidence? Are you selling certainty? Do they want to feel strong and powerful and safe and secure? Are you selling security? Are you selling strength? Or are, do they want hope for the future? These are just simple examples, but when you start to understand their psychology, the team dynamics, the culture that they're building, the actual product that they're producing for the marketplace, ideally it has to work. I mean, that's the one key thing with B2B SaaS is some products may actually not work. What are you selling to? And that will align with the language, the types of words you use, the languaging, and the positioning in the marketplace to be able to hit those core emotions based on the products or services that you offer. Okay. I, I, I really, I really want to talk about that more. So how do you like, I'm trying to figure it out too, to be frank with you. Like, okay. how do you get to that level? How do you get to that level of understanding where they're at, what their emotional state is, what kind of emotional outcome they want on a career level, maybe even on a personal level? How, how would you, how do you even approach that enigma of a, of a thing? Yeah, it's not, it sounds easier to say than to do, but the doing is actually not very complicated. A few ways, one, through research. Um, two, you can even do it leveraging AI, uh, which is kind of interesting. You can ask GPT about your market. You can ask GPT about the types of founders or the best popular founders. Um, some of it is internet, quote unquote, stalking. <laughs> I mean, just reading uh, what they're saying, what they're thinking. But the key is around conversations. Taking, I mean, you, you visit them in the office. Maybe you look at your best 10 clients in the past and have those conversations and, you know, in the buffer conversations, like, Hey, how's the family? Like I even mentioned a few things here about myself too. It's like, why did I mention that? 
double click like well why do you walk your dog or like why do you serve at your local parish like what you have a kid how old are you okay so those are all based on my beliefs and my personal worldview and your clients are giving you that information every single day they're giving that to you and when you start identifying those key pieces then you can start building out like uh i call it the inner dialogue you have to know how they talk to themselves and if you can start to fine tune your hearing to hear their inner dialogue you're not getting in their brain they're you're actually starting to understand how this person talks to themselves because everyone talks to themselves and sometimes there's positive sometimes it's very negative and that is based again on their worldview their belief system how they grew up um I have a template or a format here. Let me see if I can send it to you. So when it comes to research, I like to suggest doing following the rule of 21. If you're doing online research, just search 21 people and literally follow them on all social, see what they're posting, see the family. I know it feels a little odd or weird. The internet's at our disposal to leverage this information for good. Um, Usually when you get to like number 17, you already know what the next five are going to say. Right. So, or the next four. Um, but the key things is to understand one, what do they believe about the world? And these are the basic human philosophical questions. What is my purpose in life? Who am I in this world? If I, once you answer the questions of who you are, who are others, right? So first is answering anthropology. What is it to be human? And then second, ethics and values. If this is what it means to be human, how should I treat others? What does their future look like? What are they doing? What are the beliefs about what they're doing? Do they have intrinsic or extrinsic motivators to what they're doing? And how do they make buying decisions? Typically in SaaS, they might be more rational, but you never know. You might have an emotional buyer. Someone who buys for a very specific belief that's more emotionally based. And a lot of people tell you that, oh, everyone makes emotional decisions when buying. Yeah, sure. But that's like, that's very surface level to say, right? And then understanding their levels of trust. How do they trust people? What are the prerequisites to earning their trust? Or do they just give it away freely? So that's all these small little nuances of understanding human behavior and then positioning your products and services in alignment to that and speaking to them individually. And when you do that, uh, you can have a lot of fun with your business model, you can have a lot of fun with your pricing and in your branding. For example, I was giving a, uh, I'm, I'm a mentor in, in, in ad skills, it's like a community for, for media buyers and agency owners. And I was talking about that price, in my opinion, is actually rational. People think that price is, ir- is subjective, but it's not true. Price is very rational. Value is irrational like a small story or a fun story. Like in my household, bananas, the actual fruit is a currency. My son absolutely loves bananas. And like, if he might have three in a day, I might be like, if by accident, we will feed him two bananas or three per day, but he loves bananas. When I go to the store, I see the price of bananas. I can't get bananas for more than three bucks. They're like a dollar something for like the organic high class, you know, bananas, cage free, wild caught, whatever you want to call it. I'm like, oh wow, I'd happily pay 15 bucks for bananas. But I, again, my, my value of a banana is irrational because my son cares about them so much, but I can get them for the store for like 70 cents. And that to me is like, wow, I'm getting a steal. 
what a bargain. So how do you position your products and services in alignment to the value based on the person, based on their beliefs, and tying that back to the business case? You can't just do this and sell a puff of air, even though there are products on Amazon that where you're literally buying nothing. But besides that joke, how do you position the actual services and deliverables to a business case, but speak to them in a way where they feel it's uniquely for them and that's not seen as a commodity. Because again, if you're selling a service right now, I'm fairly confident that we can train someone up for a very low cost per hour, give them the right tools, softwares, and technologies, and they'll be able to produce something that the client would be wowed by. Because the client can't tell the difference between your 120% and someone else's 75% of output. Because they care about the result. Yeah. Wow. Raul, that's, I took two pages of notes as you were talking. So you said something really cool. And before I actually get to that, how did you learn all of this stuff, man? Like, how did you get to this, this point right now that me and you were talking on a podcast about below the surface level of buying power, what makes people tick and what makes people buy? I don't know. <laughs> by accident, by doing it. <laughs> I have a natural uh, affinity to philosophy and to abstract thinking. Um, okay. So there's that. But it's also through, I, I think it, it might be through my direct response experience of seeing marketplaces, products, why some work, why some other works. Obviously, different books and lessons and um, actual real world experience. But when we when we understand that humans do business with humans and that the future of business will always be human or will still be human even though there might be different approaches to it i think just getting back to that and having a deeper understanding um, and then at the same time strategically through through what i call invisible competition like competing on the invisible your economics your business model your positioning your pricing your partners your key vendors these things that your competitors can't see they can see your website they can steal your copy they can steal your branding they can put ads against your name saying hey we do it for cheaper or we do it faster or we do it better if your competitors are doing that please thank them for that to be honest with you because that's a race to the bottom but they can do they can't model the back end because they don't know it they wouldn't know it unless they actually had access to your p l or your or your financials. So how do we compete on the invisible? They can't model the back end and that's the invisible, right? So these invisibles that are happening, these are pretty much asymmetric opportunities that when properly fine-tuned between you know pricing, positioning, and that niche, um, that's where you unlock that, that asymmetric growth opportunity. Am I getting Absolutely. that correctly? Yeah, I mean, I, I love that you mentioned asymmetrical. It's, it's, it's kind of cool because a business is like, a, if you want to have an analogous term of a human body like every human is 95 percent the same maybe it's like 90 mm percent, -hmm. but not just for example say we have bone structure muscle tissue eyes couple hair like you know we have the whole the whole genetic similar makeup but there's always that five percent or if it's three percent whatever percentage it is I'm, I'm not a scientist or a doctor but that percentage that makes us uniquely us and the cool part is is that there's no the statistical significance is that there's no number of humans alive that there's two humans can have the exact same genetic makeup characteristics and and personality and output they might look similar they might be hate but there's everyone is actually uniquely their own and this is through statistical modeling right but when we look at that and understand okay if every human is the same every business has the potential to be the same 
They all have operations, marketing, sales, R&D, client, acquisition, health metrics, finances, money, etc. We all have that. It's what you mentioned. What are the opportunities that we can fine tune? Pricing, operational expenses. Uh, what are the other revenue levers? Lifetime value of clients. Specifically for agencies, the seven revenue levers are pricing, LTV, operational expenses, upsells, upsells and win back rates and churn rates. That's it's an increase of LTV. But these revenue levers, it's how do you fine tune them? to position yourself in alignment to your goals, in alignment to your positioning, in alignment to where you want to be seen in your marketplace. Because there's, you can also take this exact strategy and do what some companies do, they're low-cost leaders. And I'm about to tell you an opinion, so this is not an, an advice, but this is an opinion based on what I see in the marketplace. So please take this at your own discretion. But my opinion is that when you position yourself when it comes to pricing, either position yourself as a low-cost leader or as a premium high-cost or below premium. Because if you position yourself somewhere in the middle, you're giving your, your market the opportunity to compare you. It's like when we see, like uh, I won't name the product, but I absolutely love uh, this company. They sell um, home security, home cams, like for super cheap. It's, but they penetrated the marketplace by being everywhere with a, su uh, with a super cheap, very good, very competent uh, product. And then they stacked on top of that. So they led the market through low cost. There's others who lead markets with high cost because they want to be seen as competing with other players in the marketplace who are mid-market or enterprise level. Yeah, and we're just at that level now as Best Digital, just just lower. Like our, like one of our, our ultra premium web design package is 92,500. That's without mm -hmm. any add-ons, right? And so if you add on all the different bells and whistles, you're coming out to 130, 140,000, right? For oh. a Webflow website, you know? And now, now this is the type of product that, you know, the, age, the, the SaaS founders who don't have any technical background, they have a more sales, finance, marketing background. For them, it's a flex, right? It's a status symbol. Hey, we just paid this much mm -hmm. money for a website from this agency here and it's on Webflow. Check it out, you know? And so... Uh, we attract that that type of persona as well in our mm -hmm. in our funnel. Okay, so you attract someone who is seeking status in an. Ex I mean, if I can open that, do you want me to go deep in some psychology yeah, on that? Or? Let's go into that psychology <laughs> aspect. This, this is the fun part, man. This is the yeah, meat. <laughs> I love it. So they're so they're they're buying external. They they get value or status from external symbols. Um, Typically, they want to do the done for you. They don't want to do it themselves. Um, for them, you know, I, I don't. I won't dive too deep into some of the external psychology. Maybe do that offline. I can send you some some notes. But the cool part is, from there, your conversations are shaped around them being the the driver, the highlight. So I almost feel like maybe your client relationships with them is that they're always the star, and you're just there to support. You're the supporting actor in in the show. And maybe that's how your conversations, your meetings go with the client. Some good advice, not all the time, but you know, I, I see where you're coming from and I, and I see why that would be important. Yeah, I mean, there's different aspects and different people, but the, the interesting part is they're not just buying a web flow. I mean, if they're buying the status, then you're giving them that status and you're giving them that flex power. You're giving them that you know, feel good or feel powerful approach. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, giving them flex power. I love that. Giving them flex power. Because case by case, you know, like we'll have five startups that we work with. You know, three of the guys are like, you know, or girls. They're pretty cool, normal people, tech background. Mm-hmm. They don't really care for that. But then, and then you get the marketing powerhouses, you know, who have like, uh, their career has like been CMO, VP of marketing, um, former co-founder here. And it's just like, they want to have the best right away. They want to have like the Ferraris oh, and the yeah. cars and they want to, they want it to perform, right? Performance. Here's a lesson I think you website. mentioned performance mm-hmm. fast festival, but you, I think you mentioned it. It's a reflection of who they are. When people buy, it's a reflection of who they are, not because of what you do. And when I, so every time that I pitch or that I give clients options, I actually, it's not really a pitch. It's like, here's what we do. And I have them self-selecting clothes and we can talk about that if you want, but I always give them three options. And I, I remember this, like, like if it was yesterday client, I send him the whole, the whole, the whole one page deck. And he's like, Hey, I looked at the first option and then I didn't even look at the other two. <laughs> I want the best. I want the yeah. best because that's, and it's a reflection of who that person is, not of the product, even though the product is right. the best and it's real. I mean, I'm working with them, but, <laughs> but <laughs> the, the whole idea is it's it, the reflection of that. And the cool part is, is to better going back to the psychology. Why do they buy what they love? It's it, what, what they get. It's a significance. Do they want connection? Do they want love? Do they want status? Do they want to feel worthy? Do they want to feel important to other people versus your technical founder, which I'm willing to say is the one who actually wants more certainty, wants more growth, wants a solution, wants to be careful and feel powerful in that carefulness. And they might analyze things quick, like robustly before giving you an answer. They're rational buyers. That's right. Rational buyers versus the, the emotional, irrational buyers, but still wanted to perform at a high, very high level. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know what? Also, we, we've learned in, in the past few years that people are also buying on their own expectations of what they expect the website to be. So we'll be on mm-hmm. sales calls and discovery calls. They'll tell us exactly how to sell them, right? Based on what they're expecting this website to do. They say, yeah, we want this website to convert more. We want to increase the organic traffic. We want to be split testing. We want to track all of our analytics and everything. Great. Sounds good. And then at that point, we use this really cool tool called Crystal Nose. Have you heard of it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, to get their disk. To get their disk, right? And so based on that disk uh, portfolio, um, like I'm a, I think it was initiator more on the left. So initiator something else on the left, right? And and basically... Mm -hmm. Um, I sell very well to people who are on the right side. So from red that go a little bit to yellow, right? But then mm-hmm. once I'm speaking to the people who are analytical, critical, the people who go deep into analysis, the people who are finer in the details, my close rate drops like more than half, right? Oh, wow. And so, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a little lesson that what we use as a marketing agency, our hack when it comes to uh, doing these, these sales calls. That's really smart. I mean, that's really cool that you know that, but then also you can bring in the right technical people or support to be able to support you on those calls. Bingo. I love that. Okay. So it sounds to me like you you needed more support around positioning. You needed more to double click on that. Um, I mean, the other key areas that I would look at when it comes to like your entire trajectory and your growth plan is on your revenue efficiencies and your health status, but it sounds to me like you have the acquisition model, you know your CAC, CAC payback period, 
Um, but talk to me more about retention. I think you mentioned that you had some retention models and strategies, but it was mostly around gut feel. Right. Mostly around gut feel and intuition, right? We, we finish a project. We talk about the next steps of this project. Once these next steps are being spoken of, you know, the implementation of it, um, there is a bridge we still have to cross. We don't have a high close rate, like 35% on that. Mm-hmm. It's it's much lower. We're looking to improve that now, right? And so mm-hmm. um, we don't have a clear cut strategy or tactic of how we actually get people after a project is done to work with us on a monthly reoccurring basis, whether it's demand gen, web maintenance, um, helping them with their analytics and tracking. Um, that's the part okay. now that we're we're struggling at. Well, that's exciting because so a few things that I would recommend, I mean, I don't have everything in front of me. I just got to know this. So please bear with me on the, <laughs> I don't have all the data. We're good, man. Um, but we're a, good. A, a few things would be to set the expectation in the sales call that they're not making two decisions. They're making one decision because you're right now you're positioning it as two decisions. Get started right. now. And then we'll talk about the stuff later. And then from there, you have to sell them again. They have to be sold again. They have to make the same decision as opposed to packaging in the very top and even creating different offers or bundles. Hey, if you get this website for, uh, you mentioned earlier, like the, the 50 grand or the 90 grand, it comes included with this maintenance plan. And for the beginning, for us to get started, it's X amount. And then to continue, it's going to be X amount. And you'll get this, this, and this. If you want to cancel, completely fine. It's just going to, you have to pay separately and it's going to be this volume versus the, the, the package rate, the, the private client rate if you, mm-hmm. if you go with us with the website. So there's different ways to package it in the beginning to make, set the expectation where they decide, yes, I'm going to move forward or no, I'm not going to on the recurring during the initial, if you do two or three sale, um, three-step sales calls versus one here, ongoing relationship, and then at the end, again, crossing the bridge of having to make another decision. Makes sense. Have you considered that? Sense. No, it was never, it was never in my consciousness to even think about something like that. But that's, that's really good, actually. That's something we should definitely implement as soon as possible. I love it. Another key thing that could support you, um, have you mapped your customer journeys? Not entirely. Okay. So I want you to put on your Walt Disney hat. Okay. And I, and I would like for you to map out, depending on the different paths a client can take, and not because they can take unlimited amounts. Like, I don't want permutations. I just want logical streams of paths. Maybe you have five different paths. Maybe you have eight. But the logical paths, all the way from marketing to sales to onboarding, fulfillment, retention, highlight, and then just map that out first and then look with your team, have a creative session and say, how can we create peak moments how can we create not just excitement but delivery how can we crush the onboarding for them to feel like wow these guys know their stuff i've been talking about that now yeah yeah the the onboarding part we we also i'm a big believer i've studied you know the 25 cognitive biases i've studied a lot of psychology books in terms of sales right and the number one thing people always have doesn't matter what they buy um People have it to a different degree and they feel it differently, but buyer's remorse is like, how do you combat someone's buyer's remorse, right? And our our theory, which we put into practice since day one is give them a really good experience when it comes to onboarding, right? Help mm-hmm. them get the quick wins, 
show speed and efficiency, over communicate and over deliver right in the beginning. So they think, wow, we made the right choice. You know, their buyer's remorse exactly. level goes down a little bit, right? So um, we've been very conscious about that since day one. And, and now it's, you know, how to create these consistent peak moments after that onboarding is done during the project. That's mm-hmm. the next challenge I got to work on with my Walt Disney hat. I love it. Well, I mean, you're already thinking the right, the right key way. And it's always, I mean, you nailed it. I call it the two R's when it comes to unlocking LTV, it's results and relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I've, uh, I always say like, it doesn't matter how many wines you send the client, how many bottles of wine, if you can't get results, like it doesn't matter. They're not going to drink the wine, but it's like, how do you elevate their experience depending on who they are, make them feel that if they want to feel significant, how do they, how do you embed and design their path to feel that way? If they want to feel certain or powerful or in control, how do you give them that quote unquote autonomy or that control through the experience and both in the ascensions, upsells, cross sales, or even in clients that were clients, but were no longer clients. How do you continue that? And how do you start to leverage the tools that exist right now? Maybe you have a 24 seven AI bot giving answers when you're sleeping. And that way the, the bot can look at all your FUQs, all your SOPs and provide value to the client immediately. It's how do you start leveraging the tools that way versus going to the marketplace and saying, what are the tools and what I can use saying, here's what I need, what tools exist? Because the tools will always be sprouting. There's actually be a substantial amount over the next 18 months. Uh, right now at the time of this recording, Feb 2023. Um, so it's looking at that. Then also there's a natural handoff. There's a natural offboarding. When you offboard, how do you do it? How is the experience feel? Um, a good story here, a very famous, well-known uh, company here in, in San Diego. I'll, I'll save the name to save their reputation. But a friend of mine, she was working in their UX department uh, as a tech company, B2B tech. And we were discussing around user experience, customer flow, et cetera. And she mentioned that the company actually makes it very hard for people to leave. Like when you leave, they don't give you all your data as easily. They make it complicated. They give you a bad taste in your mouth. And that affects number one marketing, which is word of mouth, right? So it's looking at how do I, even when they hand off, how do they still have a wonderful handoff so that they have the opportunity to come back and feel good about coming back for your win back rate. So it's like, it's again, you're just a designer, just looking at it, the path, designing it, aligning to their core values, who they are and what you can deliver. And then finding the tools, resources, people, and training to implement it. Love it. Raul, thank you very much, man. Where can people hear about you? The best place to go is on LinkedIn and I can send that link in the show notes, but uh, just find me on LinkedIn. Let's have a conversation. Sounds good, Raul. Thank you so much, man. And I look forward to speaking with you offline. Appreciate you, man.